welcome to stat i'm telling you all medical true crime stories and it gets bizarre karen wickiam yeah she used to work in the r and now she's sharing the knowledge so let's get involved hey funny and scary at the same time medical mysteries all facts she ain't lying <laughs> so tune in the stat if you dare because crazy things can happen anytime anywhere <laughs> yeah Hello, 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 everybody out there in podcast land. Welcome to Stat, Shocking Traumas and Treatments, and I am your host, Karen Wickham, coming to you from beautiful Toronto, Ontario, Canada. And again, today I have with me my lovely wife. Hello, everybody. It's Mary. Hi, Mary. Hello. You're looking mighty lovely today. Oh, thank you. In your podcast wear. <laughs> podcast wear we can never seem to get away from the heat it's the middle of october well yeah it is mm-hmm. and it's bloody hot out yeah, it's like 22 degrees celsius yeah, but yeah there's no such thing but as glo- global, global global warning if i can wear shorts till mid-november i'm happy yeah <laughs> if i could wear shorts all year i'd be happy you do wear shorts all year anyway <laughs> yeah that's right okay let's what did you say bury this bitch bury these bitches <laughs> <laughs> This is the third and final episode of Kathy Wood and Gwendolyn Graham and the Alpine Manor Murders. The diabolical duo. Yep. So we last left off talking about all the ridiculous pranks and games they were playing at the nursing home. And oftentimes the patients were at the, you know, at the root of all their jokes. Yeah, I know you said that during your nursing career, you guys played, you guys played pranks on one another, but to include the clients or the patients is reprehensible. Well, I'll tell you how crazy we would get. We would fill a 10cc syringe with water and squirt one of each other when we walked by. <laughs> so, yeah, water guns, basically. Yeah, but nowhere near a patient, you know, and it was just something silly. You'd get a, you know, as you walk by. Of course, you always aimed for the ear um, to get it in the ear or at, like, boob spots, you know. Oh. (laughs) So you could lactate. Um, No, I mean, that's that's pretty much it. I made a gigantic rubber band ball. Like, I'm talking big. Like, I can't even compare. Yeah. And it bounced really high. (laughs) And uh, my manager found it and was like, well, you know, this is a waste of supplies and a waste of time. Meanwhile, it took like months to make it. (laughs) So, and the last time I was, you know, when I last worked, it was still there. (laughs) Maybe it's still there. It could still be there. Um, So, yeah, we were pretty wild and crazy. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but still you weren't and only if we had a few minutes to do it and if we did you know that was like oh let's squirt water at each other's ears (laughs) anyway okay so that's where we last left off now i want to talk and get into some of the their victims and give a little background and just carry on till the end of this the first person i want to talk about is marguerite chambers she had early onset alzheimer's she had been a very strong and active woman And she was only 48 years old when she was diagnosed with it. Her children, she was incredibly bright. She was a a wonderful mother. She had two boys and a girl, had a great relationship with her husband. And she worked at Lear Seigler for 30 years repairing and calibrating flight instruments. So I don't think, I mean, you have to be pretty sharp to do something like that. She was also the president of the um, UAW local. And it was first her boss and her co-workers that noticed the change in her. She was put on sick leave never to return to work. They noticed that things, her work was failing. She was repeating herself. She was forgetting things, that kind of thing. So mm. they put her, she was put on leave to just to find out what was going on. And that's when she was diagnosed. Mm. So her husband, Ed, they were very, a very loving couple. He was very devoted to her, uh, tried to take care, well, took care of her at home for eight years. But then it got to the point where he just couldn't care for her anymore because she needed total care. Everything from bathing, dressing, feeding, um, that kind of thing. So when he decided that she would go to Alpine Manor, he sold his home and bought a mobile home, a little mobile trailer, 
and a car and moved into that and he had that so he could go visit her every day and when her needs got to the point where she could no longer just be cared for at a not total care level he made sure that she was moved to a total care area of the of the manor and uh was getting full care there now she had a daughter by the name of Jan Hunderman and her husband's name was Ed Chambers and they would go visit her like I said all the time now the her daughter started to notice certain things like when she went to visit her her mom always seemed cold like her hands were cold her limbs were cold and she looked unkempt and this was not like her mom at all she was always took a lot of pride in the way she looked um and even when she was in the other area of the nursing home they you know really made sure that she looked great and was well cared for but then she moved to this new area where you require more care and she just looked untidy her hair you know unwashed just her clothes were sometimes had you know food spills on them etc and uh the other thing she noticed that if she went to go touch her mom on the face you know or touch her hair her mom would flinch and this was something new that's a sign that uh, a person is being abused if they flinch especially if someone who loves them goes to touch them even though she had dementia this was a brand new thing so was it the dementia or was something going on and as we know something was going on the aid that was assigned to her was on night shift was kathy wood Mm -hmm. so they always tried to have continuity so on your shift if you've worked with that client you want to continue to try to have them matched up with that client so yes kathy wood was her uh, main aide and so this woman was also you know flinching not looking oh yeah because she's probably terrorizing her yeah psycho so on the night of january 19th 1987 two female aides entered the room of marguerite chambers one was very tall and large and the other was short and stocky the curtain to her bed was opened one aide took a face cloth and put it up pushed her jaw up and covered her mouth and the other aide used a face cloth and plugged her nose cutting off her airway Within a minute or so, she stopped fighting, and she died of asphyxiation at the hands of Kathy Wood and Gwendolyn Graham. Her death was ruled natural. The diagnosis was MI, myocardial infarction, otherwise known as a heart attack. And it was signed off by a Dr. Piskin on January 19, 1987. Gwen and Kathy called in sick that night. So, if, you know, it was the night of the 19th they're supposed to go in on the 19th at 11 and then they become the 20th and that became i guess an mo for them is that they would murder somebody and then they would have the next night off or the next day or two off (laughs) and this is what they said they said they had to wait for someone to come in and fix their water heater because it it takes two people to do that right right yeah i remember when my water heater broke at work and i was all by myself (laughs) you had to call in people to to be with you right yeah that's right yeah um so so i have a question how do they know are you just narrating that those they went in or this was later revealed this was later revealed it wasn't like a cctv or no no and you can't have cctv in in patient rooms the only rooms at least in the in canada the only areas that you can have cameras are in main areas like hallways like and hallways and unless the person is um in isolation or um like they can't leave their room or if it's um a patient that's in lockdown uh, like a psychiatric patient that's okay. in in 24-hour observation but otherwise at least like i said in canada you cannot have cameras cameras in bed in rooms or in bathrooms and that kind of stuff though i mean there are special situations where they would do that but generally no uh so obviously they weren't waiting for the water heater to get fixed they were drinking heavily and having sex and they were role-playing the murder of marguerite so they actually took some of the restraints that were used at the nursing home okay and so they stole them well they borrowed them borrowed them yeah and they they restrained each other during sex replaying it and they really quite enjoyed this um and they would actually put pillow or something over their nose and mouth 
uh, suffocating into almost the point of unconsciousness. And uh, it really, uh, it really excited them. They loved this. And this was part of the progression of the relationship. They said it actually made them closer to each other. And this was only the beginning of their reign of terror at Alpine Manor. What happens with, the, with many patients with dementia is that they don't quite understand what's happening. So if they're being bathed or if they're getting a temperature, rectal temperature taken, because often, well, back in the day, now you can do a, in the ear and, you know, forehead, yeah. that kind of stuff. Or we're getting um, a catheter or an enema, they would think that they would, were being sexually assaulted. And oftentimes they would, uh, some patients will yell out that they're being raped, that they're being assaulted. Yeah, just because they're confused, they don't they don't really even know where they are, right? Yeah, and and so they feel sometimes that they were being attacked or that they were being watched, things like that. So this makes them so much more vulnerable because when it's really happening and they're reaching out for help or calling out for help, it can be seen or you know, oh well, they're they're just confused and this is what they do. And so how much more vulnerable does this make them? And it could go on for a very long time before they were ever taken seriously. The next patient I want to talk about is Myrtle Luce. She, and it's spelled L-U-C-E. I, I think I'm saying it right. Yeah, Luce. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. She was 95 years old. She had worked as a sales clerk when she was young. She was very kind and helped people. She even provided a home for uh, a teenage boy who was in a bad family situation. She took care of her sister-in-laws when they were sick. She was just always helping people out. In her 80s, she was no longer herself. Once a warm and loving person, she became distant and wouldn't get out of bed. She had a series of TIAs, which are also known as mini-strokes, and was diagnosed with organic brain syndrome. At 93, she required total assistance. Her daughter Hazel and son Ted were really happy with the care that her mother was getting at the manor. Hazel was there often, visiting, and sometimes assisting with her care, even though she was, uh, you know, getting up there herself. On February 10th, 1987, 10 days before her 96th birthday, she was found dead in her room at 2.20. Kathy and Gwen had been seen in Myrtle's room just before her death, even though they were not assigned to care for her that night. So you should never be in another patient's room unless you're assisting one of the the aides or right, a nurse. Yeah, Karen, come here and eat a hand with this. Exactly. Whatever, right? The bad behavior by the staff working the night shift continued. Even though some staff members wanted to report what was going on, they were too afraid. Now, that didn't mean it went unnoticed. Tish Prescott was an RN that worked there that pretty much only worked night shift and so was always in charge on the night shift. So you'd have nurses that would be in charge of whatever area and station and then you would have one nurse in charge of the whole um, actual um, uh, manor itself. She knew that there was something up. Uh, Things were just not right. Trish was an old school nurse. She had no time for pleasantries. Patience and professionalism were foremost. She tried to report them and other staff. But because of the high turnover and that they were short-staffed and overworked in the sick calls, nothing that she reported was ever taken seriously. Well, I shouldn't say that. One time she reported a staff that was found outside one of the rooms, outside one of the windows, and that person was, uh, was uh, sent home and fired outside the window oh because they used to take the screens out yeah and jump outside the window so oh, she God. found them outside the window yeah or... but they showed up a drunk at, at work one day but they didn't get fired well <laughs> um yeah that's what I'm, I'm getting to here so the two aides that we just talked about kathy and gwen um she was watching like a hawk in fact she was 65 when she was a nurse there and oh. she was getting tired and she's having some back and leg problems so she would drive around in a little scooter and buzz around from room to room so kathy and gwen would hear her coming so sometimes she would park the scooter and walk to where they are and she would scare them and they'd be like oh we didn't hear you coming so she she was trying to do her best to catch these these idiots um in the act of something yeah so she saw her impression of gwen was that she was quiet and worked hard and except for the night she turned up absolutely blasted drunk and um she could barely walk so she sent her home totally thinking she would be fired 
And then the next night, Gwen was back at work. Um, yeah, I could just show up at work drunk and yeah, know, they'll have me Jesus back the Christ. next yeah. Um, And then Kathy, she absolutely didn't trust her, like I said. Um, saw her as a ringleader. And, and she witnessed Kathy getting AIDS reprimanded and even fired. She would see... So she couldn't get Tish, the nurse, people fired or called in, but Kathy could. So, so what does that say? So many of the AIDS that work there were getting really, really nervous about working around her because they felt that she was interfering with their rounds, like sabotaging them. And she was setting them up and then reporting them. So, um, you know, she would remove things from an area or uh, hide things or mess up a room or, you know, doctor charts and stuff like that and then report them. And, and they there wasn't really much they can do about it. And she also didn't hide her anger. She, at one time, had a temper tantrum and threw a dinner tray across the hallway. Now, again, I can't imagine working, having a fit, throwing a dinner uh, dinner tray, and then, you know, being able just to carry on with the rest of my... Yeah, no consequences. Yeah. What the hell? I did work with one doctor, though, that um, I wasn't there at the time when I worked with him. And he, oh, God, he was such a bully. He was such a jerk. Um, so you did what you could just to, it reminds me of, uh, the Seinfeld episode, no soup for you. You go up, you order your soup, you step to the left, you get your soup and you leave. You don't want to piss off the soup man. Same with this doctor. You just, yes, no, whatever. But one time he got so angry that he just cleared the top of a, of a counter, like where the doctors go up where the phones are and some charts and stuff. He just took his arm and cleared it and threw stuff across the room and I guess he was reprimanded, but he wasn't suspended or fired for it. So temper, temper. Yeah, that's about the only time I've ever seen someone. You know, I, actually, I, I, I didn't. I heard of. I have never seen anybody do that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they were not only that. She verbally attacked an RN. Nothing happened, and apparently, she had just was foul. The things that she was saying to them. And they also believed that she was vandalizing people's cars of who she didn't like. So she would confront them, they'd go out to leave, and their car would be vandalized. No subtlety in that, but could you prove it? You couldn't. Mm -hmm. So there was no secret in the department that she was a violent bully. And Tish hated it when Kathy and, and Gwen worked together. She would assign them to opposite ends of the manor, and then they would trade areas and they would end up working together she reported that as well and they're like yeah well what are you gonna do so she also felt in her gut that they were up to something more sinister again she couldn't prove it prove it so she she actually went to the assistant director and the director of nursing and they were like oh well we have no proof what are we gonna do we're short staff blah 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 blah. so you know yeah let's put patients at risk because we don't want to have to deal with it some of the managers could get off their butts and work uh, yeah. Managers pretty much rarely show their apparent, at least there, didn't even show their face on the floor half the time. <laughs> That's why I, I liked working nights, that. though. I, I like not seeing my managers because during the day, everybody had their noses stuck in everything. You work a night shift and it's just you, the doctor, nurse in charge. You do your business. You don't have to worry about how come this area still has those charts in the corner? We asked you guys to put the... You know what? I don't have fucking time with for this. <laughs> yeah. So it's crazy and you're trying to find a place to put a stack of charts. Or, you know, not even charts. Just like papers. Anyway, I digress. So this is some of the things that they had progressed to. This comes from the testimony from Kathy. Her and Gwen were going into patient's room and restricting their airways by pinching their noses or putting their hand over their mouth because they wanted to see who um could fight them so the ones that were weak they were targets the ones that were strong they didn't bother with because they would make too much noise and and be too hard to kill and these people she would they would do this to they would whisper whisper to them you're going to die tonight just evil yeah in january and february 1987 
there were six falls on the floor in nine days, which is ridiculous. Patients were scared and anxious. They were afraid to take their medicine or eat or have any of their activities of, of daily living, like care done. And one patient injured herself climbing up her bed and fell over the backboard because she was trying to get away from the nurse because she thought the nurse was trying to kill her. Mm. All right, let's uh, talk about the uh, next um, woman, next victim. Her name was Maisie Mason, but also but went as May Mason. She was 79 years old and she had Alzheimer's. She was once a very independent woman, loved much by her family, especially her granddaughter. Her condition had slowly deteriorated over the years, and by February 1987, she was completely confused and required total care. One of the main aides that were taking care of her was went by the name of Sean Doherty. When she went to check on her patient on the night of February 16th at 2 a.m., the door to May's room was closed, which is completely unusual. Don't close the rooms. You might like close them a little bit, but you would be able to see clearly into the room. So the door's closed. She tries to open it and she can't. Something's behind the door pushing back on her. Who was it? It was Kathy and Gwen. They were holding the door shut. Finally, they opened it and they were laughing. Now, again, they shouldn't have been in those rooms, but what kind of bullshit game is that? I think five. Absolutely ridiculous. But clearly they were in there doing something. They were up to no good. So um, Sean returned to check in on May at four o'clock. And when she got in there, she was gray. She was on her back with her hands at her side with her mouth open and her jaw was lifted to one side like it looked like it had been dislocated. Um, and her hands were pointing or facing up to the ceiling. Now, I think she, they were being posed. This hasn't really come up before or maybe it has in, in another uh, episode elsewhere that covered it. But um, all the patients were found that way or at least the ones that were reported they were lying on their back with their hands to their sides, pointing up to the ceiling. Which is not a natural pose for most people. Well, no, you don't usually, well, I guess you could die that way, but all these people that died were, well, most of them were otherwise healthy. So she was so upset. She called out to the nurse to come into the room and then the nurse supervisor on the floor and she was uh, pronounced dead. And the death certificate said it was a cardiac arrest, natural causes, and shortly after, she was cremated. So, if you know... If you, your oxygen flow gets cut off, of course you'll go into cardiac arrest. Well, yeah, but the thing is, is that because they were so weak and didn't fight, there were really no signs, and they used these face cloths so there wouldn't be fingerprints or specific bruising. So it would happen quick there really wouldn't be any signs of struggle. Anyway, Sean quit shortly after because she was terrified of Kathy. That's it. You know, no amount of money is, is worth uh, working here under those conditions. Another patient was uh, by the name of Ken. He had dementia. And would, um, it would cause him to sometimes be really loud and combative. Except for when Kathy was around. And one night when Angie, I've talked to her about her before, was assigned to Ken. He was being loud, yelling, and he was confused. So Angie knew that Ken would settle when she was around. She said, how do you do it? Can you help me out here? So she said, watch this. She walked over to Ken, whispered in his ear, and he fell silent almost immediately. And Angie said to Kathy, what did you do? And this is what Kathy said, quote, and this is from the book that I've referenced in the uh, notes um, and a quote from Angie. I told him, go ahead, scream one more time, but look at me. I'm bigger than you. I'm huge, in fact. You are helpless. I am not. You scream one more time and I will kill you. And there will be nothing you can do to stop me. End of quote. Angie knew she should report it, but she was terrified to do so. Kathy had gotten even worse over the last couple of months. She was even more abusive and vindictive than ever. Even her closest friends were afraid of her. They were not only just afraid of her emotional abuse, but now she was threatening them physically as well. The violence towards Gwen had increased quite a bit as witnessed by friends. They saw Kathy battering her. 
So Angie just quit soon after the incident. She wanted nothing to do with Kathy and the insanity at Alpine Manor anymore. I'm curious. So they witnessed, you know, her battering Gwen, but they didn't report her? Like, was it just out of fear? Well, they didn't witness her battering Gwen at the nursing home. Oh, okay. Oh, she was having parties all the time, remember? Right, right. So or was she seeing signs of her being battered, I guess, maybe, was it? Well, they saw that as well, but, I mean, it was known that... You know, Gwen would get into a lot of bar brawls and those two had, you know, very aggressive um, intimacy with each other, if that's what you want to call it. And but I guess at some of the parties and in the bars, they saw they would see Kathy grab her by the hair and yank her bad backwards and drag her out of her room. They would see her slap her and punch her and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, no. Yeah, so the next patient I'm going to talk about is Ruth Van Dyke. Her son and daughter, they were twins, Alan Levina, were called on the 25th, um, 1987, sorry, February 25th, 1987, because they said that their mom looked like she was going to pass away anytime. They were sh- she was showing signs. And so they went and they sat with her. Now, as the evening went on, she was still hanging in there and you know and so they thought okay well we should go home grab a couple hours sleep and come back so at two o'clock in the morning they got a phone call to rush back into the hospital or rush back into the nursing home because she had died she had a cardiac arrest they said so that you know just reminds me of other cases we've covered where the family leaves the room something happens they're called So yes, uh, and of course, Kathy and Gwen had been working that night. Next person I'm going to talk about is Belle Burkhardt. Kathy and Gwen were again on the evening that she passed away, and she also died on the 26th. So that was two patients that died on the 26th. Mm. Okay, so they were escalating. She had dementia, but she was, as sometimes they say, pleasantly confused and uh, healthy physically. She loved classic music and she would smile and she would act like she was a teacher and that she was teaching little kids. So if someone would come into the room or one of the nurses, she'd be like, okay, let's, let's sing this song together. And you know, she was very sweet. The thing is going back onto the 15th, one of the aides that worked with Belle noticed that she had bruises on her nose and on her cheek and her temples. She reported it to management and family as per protocol. But because she had a history of seizures, they said, oh, that might explain it, that maybe she had a bit of a seizure and she hit her head. But obviously those were areas where she was being held, uh, suffocated. Kathy didn't like Belle. She said she was difficult for whatever reasons that Kathy decides. And and that's a good reason. If you're difficult, you should die. Like, right. that's fucking, ugh. So on February 25th, an aide by the name of Pat Ritter was doing rounds in the early morning at four she went in to check in on her patient and found her deceased she was really distressed and she called for help she was pronounced dead at 425 by the staff supervisor rn and apparently pat remembers when all this was going on she was really upset but she remembers kathy standing at the nurse's station with her arms crossed with like a little smirk on her face watching what was going on so she was getting a lot of pleasure from it so remember we talked about Don Mail way back? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So even though she was pretty much out of the picture, she did um, hang out with them occasionally. And this one particular night they were out partying and they went back to Kathy's place to drink like usual. And they told her that they were killing patients at Alpine Manor. So because they played so many head games, Kathy in particular, Don thought they were just like screwing around with her. But she, all the, like, after a while, she thought, no, you know what? I don't think, I think they're telling the truth. And this scared her. And to prove that they were telling the the truth, they said that they had been keeping souvenirs. So Kathy went into her bedroom, pulled out a box, and there was one, a patient sock in there, along with some jewelry and trinkets. And because Dawn had worked there, she knew that some patient stuff had been going missing. And so when she saw this, she's like, holy crap. This could be from the the patients that they had murdered. Mm -hmm. Not just blowing smoke. So she tried to 
convince herself that they were messing with her and didn't want to think about it and just sort of uh, didn't say anything. The next person I want to talk about is Edith Cook. She was another victim of these two psychopaths. Edith was 97 at the time that she died. She had suffered a lot through her life. She got married young, lost her husband when she was only 50. She adopted a child. The child passed away. And she only had a half-brother at the time that was in her life. And But he would stop by with his son and his son's kids. So she did have some family that would come visit her. When she was admitted, she had no history of dementia. She was going into the hospital because she needed more care. She couldn't manage herself. So... By 1985, she was diagnosed with breast cancer, and she's like, you know what, 95 years old, I don't want to get any treatment. And it was slow growing, so she just left it at that. However, her health continued to deteriorate over the next couple of years. And she had, it was a bit of an accident. Her legs got, got caught in her bed rails while she was sleeping. It cut off her circulation, and her toes became gangrenous. Oh, wow. So now she has this painful condition i mean her her toes are gangrenous she was in constant pain and they didn't hesitate to give her pain medication on april 7th the nurse that was working in that area by the name of marianne connor visited mrs cook at around midnight to put some cream on her toes to change dressings that kind of thing the aide that was assigned that night was kathy wood marianne did not trust kathy at all and Furthermore, Marianne had that she needed to be convinced any further. She had seen a lot of bad behavior going on in the nursing home. And of course, Kathy was behind all of it. One of the things she noticed when they were there is that they would blast music while going around and taking care of people, like changing them and repositioning them. And when some of the patients had trouble eating, they would get pissed off, Kathy, and she would throw food at them. So if they were sort of like not wanting to eat or turning their head or whatever, she would just pick up the food and throw it at them. Of course, she reported it and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So at 2.30 that morning, Kathy approached Marianne and said she thought that Edith Cook was dead. So she had been alive at midnight and now she was dead at 2.30. She went in the room and found Edith on her back, arms at her side, facing to the ceiling, being posed. So the floor supervisor came in, pronounced her dead. Now, one thing I want to tell you about Edith is that she, too, was very particular about her appearance. And she wore dentures. She had an upper plate. And she didn't like to be seen without them. In fact, she insisted that she had them in even when she was sleeping. Her teeth went missing. Oh, for crying out loud, they took her teeth. They took her upper plate as a souvenir. (laughs) See, my mom has, like, a partial plate. And she takes usually takes it out at night. Yeah, but I mean, this lady she was she was very particular about her teeth, so so she would leave it in. Yeah, so you know that was Kathy's way of saying, okay, that was your last in your face, right? In June 1987, Gwen gave notice to resign at Alpine Manor. She was sick and tired of Kathy and all the the stuff that she was doing. She was sick of the abuse, so she quit. She got a good recommendation from management, (laughs) which is okay. She came to work hammered and played games, but, you know. But sometimes they'll give the good uh, reference just to get them out of there, too. Mm -hmm. And she was getting paid $2 more an hour, and she was going to start July 1st. So she had this time off in between. So in the meantime, she had been seeing this other Alpine aide by the name of Robin Fielder, who they were doing it behind Kathy's back. Yeah. So the abuse escalated to the point where Gwen, it's like, I'm out of here. And she planned on moving out for July. Gwen and Robin moved into a friend's house, into their mobile home. Her name was Lisa Lynch. And Kathy would go to the trailer park and stalk them in her love truck. Um, (laughs) So... And this whole time, Gwen was like, had no intention of staying in this trailer home or this trailer park. She was making plans to move back to Tyler, Texas, and Robin wanted to go with her. So when Kathy got wind of this, she became enraged. She went to Robin and said, look, if you do this, I'm going to go to your parents 
and tell them that you're a lesbian. Thing is, Robin came from this upper middle class family, you know, white Christian proper family. She was went to a private school. She was a cheerleader. And to her, like she was absolutely terrified about her parents finding out. Even though she was 21 years old, she still was terrified that they found it, that they would find out. Kathy also threatened Gwen. She said she would go to the Alpine staff management and the police and tell them that she had murdered these patients. Gwen freaked out and told Kathy that she would move back in with her. So she went back to the house to move back in. She was doing it temporarily just to see if she could calm Kathy down. When she left, she was so afraid that she took her rifle with her. Just in case. After a couple days, Robin asked Gwen when she would be coming back. And uh, Gwen said to her, look, I need some more time because she's got something on me. So Robin didn't know at the time about anything and um, she won't let me leave. When Robin asked what it was, she said, look, I can't talk to you about it. And then a couple days later, within a, a week of leaving, Gwen moved back to move out of Kathy's and back in with Lisa and Robin. Gwen looked horrible. This gets really this some really sick shit here. She was covered in bruises and cuts all over her and some really deep ones going down her back. Kathy had been beating her and sexually assaulting her. She actually raped her with her rifle. Oh my god. Yeah. And she god, when when she was raping her with it, she said that she was going to shoot shoot the gun. Well, that'd be terrifying. I think that's as sick as you can get, especially one woman to another woman. Okay. Uh, Somehow Gwen survived the assaults and the abuse and the rape and was able, I don't know, Kathy somehow allowed her to leave and they left it that they would just be friends. But I guess for Kathy, she knew that uh, she scared the shit out of Gwen. Gwen wasn't going to do anything. Early in August, Kathy called Ken. She was always playing head games with him. But in the middle of this conversation, she told him that her and Gwen had killed six patients. And he was like, okay, she's just playing head games with me again. And he asked her more questions. She said, you know what? I don't want to talk about it over the phone. I'm going to come over to your place. And she did. And Kathy continued on with this discussion about her and Gwen killing patients. So this is what she told him of course she always mixed lies with truth right so she said she killed them they killed them with washcloths kathy would hold their chin up and keep their mouth shut and or mouth closed gwen would cover their nose and they would suffocate them sometimes she said gwen did it on her own while kathy stood lookout she named at least one of the patient marguerite but of course she said that gwen made her do it that gwen was abusive to kathy that she was the victim, not Gwen. So everything that she had been doing to Gwen, she told Ken that Gwen had been doing to her. Which is so believable. The one thing that they were, she told him as well, is that they played this game called the murder game. And what they wanted to do was kill six patients with the initials that spelled out murder. Wow. But they gave up because they could not find enough patients that were weak enough to kill to spell out murder. So they just went around, found the weakest patients and killed them instead. Another thing that they would do is that they would leave these love letters for each other all over the place. And at the end of the letter, it would say, or one of it, it started, I love you forever in a day. The next one would say, I love you forever in two days. I love you forever in three days. Those numbers corresponded with how many patients they killed. Mm. Okay. Were those like in court? They yeah, they, this, these things came out in, okay. uh, in court. I don't know if they had the physical notes or not. Oh, they had the physical notes oh, as well. Oh, wow. okay. Yeah. So that was a Friday that she went and visited Ken. Ken being Ken, he didn't want to believe what she did or that she had done it. Or that it was even her fault if she did do it. He always made it, always made excuses for her. And this is 
a quote from him. Now, I don't know if it's his exact words, but this is a quote that um, I got. He'd say, look, Kathy, this is awful, but you've been through an awful time. You're confused. You haven't killed anyone either. You felt sorry for those people. You just messed up. You need help. All this is because you don't know what kind of life you want to live. You don't know what's going on in your life. End of quote. <laughs> and Kathy said, smiling, no, Ken, that's not right. We did it because it was fun. And he was shocked. Hmm. Well, I, you know, she lied so much to him. I mean, how did he know which was, you know, true, what was not? Well, that's the thing with her is that you never know. Right, so he was saying, like, that you're just imagining that that happened. You're just distressed because the, the but patient, as you can patient see, died. It worked in her favor. Yeah. Right? Because she could pretty much say whatever, because she was a compulsive liar, mm-hmm. that here she is telling the truth, and but still Ken is like, but it's it's not your fault. You've had a rough life. Oh, come on. I'm sorry. But if you told me you murdered six people, I love you. But I'd be looking into it. I wouldn't <laughs> be like, oh, that's okay, dear. You've had a rough life. I don't even want to think about that conversation because it wouldn't happen. Anyway, so on the Saturday, he, she went home and they started to talk on the phone again. And she still told him the same story. So he said to her, please turn yourself in. You need help. And she said, if you turn me in, I will kill myself. So he promised that he wouldn't. On the Sunday, he was afraid that Kathy and Gwen would get back together and that they would kill him. So he called a a therapist that he had from years and years ago and said, I need to talk to you. My wife, ex-wife, says that she has killed six people. And he made an appointment to go see him the next day. And this is what the therapist said. Oh, I think she's lying. And he offered offered him some advice. He suggested that if he went to the police, he would, wouldn't be taken seriously and he would just look like a fool. So, you know, don't bother. She's lying. What kind of flippin' therapist is that? That's some great advice. And if you do report it, you're just going to look silly. Come on. So um, he decided not to report her. He figured that Kathy would come to her senses. So um, let's get back to to Gwen and Robin for a second here. Gwen quit her job at Alpine Manor and had been making plans with Robin to go to Texas, and they headed that way in August. On October 6th, Ken goes to the police, and he speaks to a cop by the name of Tom Freeman, and he told him everything that Kathy had told him. Uh, And again, he continued to make excuses for her. On October 7th, Kathy was arrested at Alpine Manor and taken into the police department. Now, this cop, Tom Freeman, was creeped out by Kathy. He was like, she was really quiet, didn't seem bothered at all, didn't even say a word. Um, And while he was interviewing her, he said she would play so many games. Like, he could see that she was warped, that she was twisted. And, of course, her whole shtick was, I was abused by Gwen. She made me do it. And he believed that murders took place, but he didn't know what to believe from her. So she told her version, of course. And she said that she was terrified of Gwen. <laughs> she was like a third of her size. Yeah. But they still, still they didn't have any proof. Like, there were, there were no bodies. There was no physical evidence. So Kathy yeah, said... some were cremated, right? Yeah, yeah. And so Kathy said, well, I can prove it. I've got letters and souvenirs at my house. So they drove her to her house. She came out with a paper bag of, of letters, and but the, the souvenirs were not in there, and the letters proved nothing. They were just really explicit love letters between the two of them. Now, she said, look, I'll take a, a polygraph test. And so she failed the polygraph test. Mm-hmm. No, but the polygraph test was saying that she and Gwen murdered six patients, but that she was the victim of Gwen and that Gwen did it. So she failed it. 
and they thought, okay, this is a hoax. She's just messing around. But the reason why she failed is because she was just as involved as Gwen. Right. So she's, so they she failed based on that she was fabricating that it was yeah. Gwen that Not initiated that, everything. Yeah, so they were like, oh, this is a hoax, whatever. And then she was almost like she was like pissed off because she still wasn't being believed. <laughs> so she said she'd do a second one. And this time she told the truth. And the polygraph supported that. I don't know what to think about polygraphs, but whatever. So once she, uh, you know, included herself in the murders, then the polygraph came back. Gwen was arrested in October, I think that it was the 12th um the reason why they were able to arrest her was because she was had a warrant out she had written some bad checks and she hadn't paid back the fine so while they uh, took her in they had a a search warrant to search her home and they didn't find anything a proof so now they've got these two women Gwen's denying it. Kathy's spilling the beans on everything, but they still don't have any proof. There's nothing to really keep them or arrest them on. So when the police were interviewing Gwen, of course, she she denied anything. She said she didn't murder anybody. Nothing of the sort happened. But what she did tell them is about all the sick shit that was going on in their relationship. And they were like, whoa. This is an abusive relationship. Now they're going, okay, so Kathy is the criminal mastermind and and Gwen is the one that went along with it. So they did a polygraph on her, but it came back inconclusive, which is not unusual because people with personality disorders can convince themselves of things. If they believe their own shit, it'll come back as that they're telling the truth. Police have absolutely no proof of the murders and they had to let them go. So I told you that Kathy passed her second polygraph, and that was on November 23rd, 1988, when she took it. The thing is, they still had no physical evidence. Only two of the patients were buried. Um, The rest of them were cremated. And so they exhumed them, and they showed no indication that they had been murdered. And the fact is, is because they were too weak to fight. It just, it wouldn't show that. The two patients that were exhumed were Marguerite Chambers and Edith Cook. But this time, the forensic pathologist changed the death from natural causes to homicide. For whatever reason, even though it didn't show any, he still changed it to homicide. Then they got warrants. The police got warrants. On December 4th, 1988, Gwen was arrested for the murder of Edith Cook. And Kathy was arrested for one count of conspiracy to commit murder of Marguerite Chambers and one count of murder with Edith Cook. The trial started on September 11th, 1989. And of course, their stories conflicted. Kathy was always manipulating and changing her story as it suited her. So she would just, you know, giving everybody whiplash with the stories that she told. (laughs) I, I watched an interview with her. After when she was in uh, prison. Which, Kathy? Yeah. Okay. And even when she was telling what happened and what Gwen apparently had been doing, she was smirking and smiling through the whole thing. She just, you know, they have those people that analyze, um, psychologists, psychiatrists that analyze it. You know, I am no professional, but I can see that when a woman is talking about murders and she's smirking and smiling through the whole thing. Yeah. So on April 89... Kathy signed a plea agreement in exchange for testimony against Gwen. She was found guilty of one count of conspiracy to commit murder and one count of second degree murder. Gwen, based on Kathy's testimony, was convicted on one count of conspiracy to commit murder and five counts of murder in the first degree. And she still maintains her innocence to this day. Mm-hmm. Gwen got five let. Sorry, Gwen got six life sentences. And Kathy got 20 to 40 years. Should have been the other way around. Yeah, so on September 20th, 1989, that's when uh, they were given their sentences. Kathy was sent to Tallahassee Prison in Florida and Gwen to the Robert Scott Prison in Michigan. 
So Tallahassee. Where are net? Where are they now? Gwen is serving out her six life sentences, and Kathy got released in prison January sixteenth, twenty twenty. She was refused release eight times, but the ninth was a charm. <laughs> now the conditions of her release were that she were to stay away from the elderly and children (laughs) and vulnerable patients. However, that condition ended as of June 2021. And she lives in Fort Mill, South Carolina with her sister. She's 57 years old. So she's out free and clear. Who knows what she's going to do? I mean, she served 30 years. Okay. Should have got life. But in her mind, that's a victory, right? She probably ran that prison. Oh, no doubt. She probably enjoyed herself. Uh-huh. Oh, my God. I can't even believe that she probably just had a bloody harem. Ugh, I don't want to think about it. <laughs> so that is the end of the Kathy Wood, Gwendolyn Graham, Alpine Matter murders. Sick. These vulnerable... like victims these vulnerable elderly people that are at the mercy of those who care Mm -hmm. for them they deserve the best care possible indeed and you know people were hired off the street with absolutely no no training that doesn't mean that they weren't getting some excellent care just because you don't have any training doesn't mean you don't have compassion and uh, sympathy empathy but unfortunately you know like there's a whole bunch of things to work with people like that just you know kindness and i mean it was a perfect storm you have this highly intelligent manipulative narcissistic psychopath kathy you have gwen who was horribly abused and had many brain injuries and you know bipolar like she was borderline personality god knows what else you can say you know uh, uh, she had antisocial personality disorder i mean so many that its basis came from her childhood all the way up so you have her who would flip between being a very kind and loving person to an aggressive sociopath that could kill You put those two together. Gwen just wanted to be loved and accepted. Kathy wanted to be idolized. You put them together and at least six people were murdered. And how many were victimized? Yeah. If anybody listening to this has anything to add, uh, any questions, any comments, any opinions, please feel free to email me the... All the information to contact me is in the show notes and feel free to join the stat Facebook group, best group in the land. As I always say, um, if you have any time, I'd love it if you could go to iTunes and leave a review. It uh, helps get the podcast out there, but it Mm -hmm. also helps make my heart warm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And thank you to all the Patreon supporters. I really, really appreciate all the support that you give. I appreciate all of you guys. So thank Thank you you for listening. And Halloween is coming up. I might just have a special Halloween episode coming. Ooh, scary. Scary. So that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening. Remember to take care of yourself. Take care of one another. And most importantly, love yourself. Peace. One love. True crime and it gets none realer. Sometimes it'll be the cure that'll kill you. Gotta watch out, yeah, you gotta watch your back. Cause you don't wanna be another episode on stat. Thank you for tuning in, learn a thing or two. These medical mysteries can be unbelievable, yeah. Subscribe, make sure you do that so you'll be tuned in and be ready for the next show. Stack. <laughs>